0: Hey, nice to see you. I uh, met some first-timers today. Glad to have you with us for the first time. Some second-timers as well. Some old-timers are here. Some prodigals have come back. Uh, some of the snowbirds are starting to come back. So good to see everybody. And of course, we have our online church that's joining us live stream. Love you guys too. I, don't, I missed the announcements because I was, I was listening out there or I was talking out there in the Worship Welcome Center. So I don't know if you mentioned this, but uh, I hope you did. For that big lunch that we're having in November, we have the one service and the big lunch. We need we need people to sign up for that. We need to we want to know real bad how many are coming. Did he mentioned that? There's a registration. You can there's a, you know you can do it old style with, on a registration form out there or online. But we've got about fifty I think people that are currently have said they're coming. I think we're going to have 150 or 200 people there. Certainly for the service we can't hardly fit everybody in here for one service, but we will. But for the dinner afterwards, it's going to be big. It's going to be great. But we're, we're providing the meat, the turkeys and everything. The church has to buy those in advance. So please make sure that um, you're registered for that. Having said that, on an August 18th podcast, Las Vegas Raiders star quarterback Derek Carr talked about how growing up he was taught faith came number one. He said he was not allowed to skip church if games fell on Sunday because his parents made The priorities, the priorities. The 31-year-old opened up about growing up in Texas in his teen years. He said, I was raised in the church. My grandpa was a preacher. My uncle was a preacher. My other grandpa was a deacon. My dad was a deacon. My mom is a worship leader. Poor guy didn't stand a chance, did he? My mom and my dad, they taught me that my faith was number one. If there was a game on Sunday as a kid, we always told my traveling coach, I'm not going to be there. i got to be at church. They made the priorities the priorities, and it worked out for me, I made it to the NFL. So all these moms and dads that say, no, we have to go to your games at eight years old. You know, it's okay to miss one. Of course, he plays on Sundays now, doesn't he? But uh, we're in a sermon series, Solid, a sure word in a shaky world. And the sure word today is the church. The church is solid. Why is the church solid? Lots of reasons. But we're going to talk about three very important ones today. Three things about the church. Number one, because the church is the called out. The church is called out, which makes it different. The Greek word here is ekklesia. So there you go. you got a little Greek today. Ekklesia means called out. It was used in ancient Greece to call out citizens of a free city state to conduct public business. But this is the word that's used in the church For we are called out of uh, darkness into the light. We're called out of sin into righteousness. We're called out of the world into the church. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Let's read about Speedy Morris. Speedy Morris was a basketball coach at LaSalle University. And he says that he was upstairs shaving one day when his wife called up to him. This is back during the, when they had landlines. His wife called up to him and said, Hey, Speedy the, uh, Sports Illustrated is on the phone for you. And he got so excited about the prospect of national exposure. He actually he cut himself shaving and he rushed down the hall and then ran down the stairs and he fell on the stairs, and bruised his shin. And he finally makes it to the phone. He's got blood lather on his face and he's, he's hobbling along and he gets on the phone. And on the other end of the line, they say, uh, Mr. Morris, for 75 cents an issue, you could have a trial subscription to Sports Illustrated. Sometimes the importance of a call is based upon who is doing the calling. We are here today. We're here as the church, not because Steve Jones has called us out, not because the elders have or your parents have, but because God has called us out and he's called us out of the world what's so bad about the world <laughs> well our world has different morals has different values has different priorities have different standards than God does than the church does The church is anti-cultural these days I like the way John Mark Homer puts it in his book live no lies it's a great book live no lies he writes, here's a crucial idea we need to recapture in our generation. The church is a counterculture. It's a beautiful resistance to the world and its vision of life. The world's vision of life is rebellion against God. Or since the Western secular world is currently more of an anti-culture than a culture, more about tearing down than building up, about deconstruction than construction, then maybe it's better to say that the church is a counter-anti-culture. The church is an alternative society, a group on the margins of the host culture, living in an alternative but compelling and beautiful way, a prophetic signpost to kingdom life in a culture of death. There's a tremendous opportunity in our cultural moment for the church to come back to her roots as a counter-anti-culture. I've already made peace with the obvious reality I will never fit in, I will never be cool, I will never be liked or well-respected or admired by this culture, and that's okay. The word church itself means those who are called out. It is not a community of comfort, it's a community of calling. The church is a sure word to a shaky world, because we're called out, and that makes us different. Now here's a second reason. Because the church is the kingdom. The church is the kingdom of God. And that makes the church important. This word church, ecclesia, is first used in the New Testament by Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. The setting there is when Jesus was talking to His disciples and asked them, "Who Who do men say that I am? And they said, Who do you say that I am? And remember that Peter responded with what we call the good confession. He says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's when Jesus says this, Matthew 16, 18. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That is the rock of that confession and Jesus' identity as the Christ. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now what I'd like us to see right there in that passage is how church and kingdom are used interchangeably. Because the church Is the kingdom and the kingdom is the church. It's used that same way interchangeably elsewhere in the New Testament. For instance, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 18. One long continuous thought there church and kingdom. It's used that way in Hebrews chapter 11, but we are going to get there. When Jesus talked about the kingdom, it was always in the future tense in his earthly ministry. He came and preached repentance, for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is coming. He said, I will build my church. But after Pentecost, it was always spoken of as in existence. Now you remember what happened at Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2. This is a Jewish feast taking place 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection. There's a million Jewish pilgrims in the city. Peter and the apostles stand up. They preach the first gospel sermon. The Bible says that the audience there, the congregation, was cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? And Peter responded, this is Acts chapter 238 and verse 39, repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call unto Himself." 3,000 responded to the message and were baptized. And the Bible says they were added to their number. So at that point in time, Peter took his keys. He unlocked the door to the kingdom and threw that door wide open and 3,000 people came in. The kingdom, the church, was established. That was the time and now it exists. And that makes the church important. It's what the prophets were prophesying about. In the Old Testament there, where you have the nation of Israel, and you had the first king was Saul, and then David was a king, and then Solomon was a king, and that was the glory years of the kingdom of Israel. After Solomon, it was downhill. It was downhill all the way. But the prophets kept prophesying throughout the history of Israel, there's a descendant of David coming. He's going to be an everlasting king. He's going to sit on David's throne in the restored kingdom. That descendant was Jesus. And that restored kingdom is the church. It's important. If you think of it in terms of of football, I like to think of it this way. Uh, The patriarchs in the Old Testament were like the preseason of football. Preseason. So that would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for instance. And then... During the time of Israel, when God formed Israel into a nation, the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea formed them into a nation, and their history right there, that's like the regular season. And then the the church, the kingdom ages, the post-season. Some of you are really into football. You love football. you got your team, your favorite team. When your team is playing, you get the colors there. you got the color on your pickup truck. You put the flag out there in front of your house. You wear a certain color that matches your team colors to church when your team is playing or after your team has won. You you watch the preseason games. You watch the regular season games. You got your favorite player or players. Some of you even have a fantasy football team, which I guess that means you fantasize about football. Others of you are more like me. You don't care. You don't really care about football. You don't watch the preseason. You don't watch the regular season. You don't have a team. You don't have colors. You don't know who the players are. Unless they're in the news. The only players I know right now are Tom Brady and Giselle. (laughs) Because I keep up with current events. But I will watch one game a year. I will watch one game a year. It's the game, I was reading this last week, 90% of people in America who have television sets watch this game. 100 million people watch this game. What game is that? It's the Super Bowl. Why does everybody watch the Super Bowl for the commercials? No, not for the commercials and not for the halftime show. And don't watch the halftime show this year. Please, if you're a Christian. It's the most important game of the year. It's the only one that really matters. The only one that really counts. It's the most important game of the year. The church age, the kingdom age that we are lucky enough to live in, and probably that's not the right word, that we are privileged. We live in the church age. The age of the kingdom is the Super Bowl of what God is doing in history. It's the Super Bowl. It's the most important time. It's what the prophets were looking forward to. The Bible says it's what the angels longed to understand. It's Paul says it's the great mystery. He says, here's the mystery that I preach, that God was combining Gentiles and Jews into one kingdom, the church. It's the main event, the Super Bowl, and because it is, what we do and how we play the game and plan and execute, our toughness, determination, our sacrifice, how we mesh as a team, our willingness to play hurt, take risk, be bold, be strong and courageous, it all matters. It all carries the greatest consequence. There's even a great crowd of witnesses watching, like the 100 million TV viewers that watch the Super Bowl. The Hebrew writer puts it this way in Hebrews 11.39. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And we might say, play the game. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You've come to the church. This is his description of the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. You see that? Church kingdom. A sure word to a shaky world. This world can be shaken. This world will be shaken. But the kingdom cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. We're different. The church is important. And then the other thing I wanted to say about the church is the church is you. And so it's personal. And me. The church is you and me. Peter writes, "You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house." So yes, we're called out. We're called called out of darkness. We're called out of sin. We're called out of the world but we're called into the church, a community, a family. James Clear in his book, Atomic Habits, says this, Convincing someone to change their mind is really the process of convincing someone to change their tribe. If they abandon their beliefs, they run the risk of losing social ties. You can't expect someone to change their mind if you take away their community too. You must give them somewhere to go. Nobody wants their worldview torn apart if loneliness is the outcome. If you have a church family, most of us do, don't talk about church as they or them, what they're doing at that church over there. They, them, it's not they, them, it's we, it's us. We have ownership in the church. I haven't told this story in a while, but where Tammy, my wife, goes to, to get her nails done, her manicures and all, a lady that works on her nails knows her. You know, She's been going there for years. And a while back, another lady from our church started going there. And when they were chatting, she mentioned to the same woman that was doing her nails, she mentioned that she goes to Vero Christian Church. And this nail worker said, Oh, oh, Vero Christian Church, I know that church. I do the, knownor, I do the owner's nails. Well, my wife Tammy is not the owner of this church. I'm not the owner of this church. Of course, Jesus is the owner and he's the king. But she does have ownership in the church. I have ownership and you have ownership. Our newest member has just as much ownership as a charter member or an elder or a staff member in this church. When we're born again, we become a part of God's church universal. And this word church is used in two senses in the New Testament. It does have a local sense. So you've got the church at Rome and the church in Corinth and the church at Ephesus and the church at Thessalonica and the church at Philippi. Those are localized churches. It's also used in a universal church. The, u- the church universal. We're all a part of that. That's what the word Catholic means. We're all Catholics in that sense. We're all part of the universal church. But we also must be a part of a local church, a local expression of the church. It's just like when a baby is born. The baby becomes, as soon as the baby's born, he or she is part of the family of man, right? Meaning humankind, mankind. But that child also needs to be, must be in a, a specific particular family that's going to love him, it's going to take care of her, gonna meet their needs and cherish them and take the journey of life with them. Again, let me quote John, John Mark Comer in Live No Lies." Now, this is a long quote, so you, you got to work with me here. I can't make the eye contact and all that, but th- th- I think it's worthwhile. I just love the way he says this, so here we go. He writes, the great danger is that we will be colonized by the culture. What he means is mentally colonized, culturally colonized. The gravitational pull of the world is hard to resist. Political scientist Joseph Nye coined the language of hard power versus soft power to talk about different types of socio-political influence. Hard power is brute force. It eventually sparks a a backlash. Soft power is a different beast. It's the ability to shape the preferences of others and to attract. Hollywood is the epitome of soft power. Hollywood has done more to change Western mores around sex, divorce, adultery, vulgar speech, and consumerism than most anything simply by making movies that are fun to watch. Rod Dreher called the emerging culture of the West a soft totalitarianism. And he wrote, this totalitarianism will not look like the USSR. It's not establishing itself through hard means like armed revolution or gulags. Rather, it exercises control in soft, forms. For followers of Jesus in the Democratic West, soft power is the far greater threat. It's subtle but corrosive. It eats away at our heart, appealing to your flesh, until you wake up one day and realize, dang, I've been colonized. How do we resist? Spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare. That's what this book is all about, the spiritual disciplines. The practices of Jesus are how we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. But now we come to the most basic practice of all, so basic I often think of it as less a practice and more as the milieu in which we practice the way of Jesus, the church. Whether you define church as a Sunday gathering around a stage, a much smaller community around a table, or as I would recommend, a mixture of both, We can't follow Jesus alone. Jesus did not have a disciple singular. He had disciples plural. The call to follow Jesus was and still is a call to join His community of the way. And by following Jesus together, not alone, we're able to, one, discern Jesus' truth from the devil's lies, two, help one another override our flesh by the Spirit, and three, form a robust community of deep Relationships that functions as a counterculture to the world. Mark Atterbury is a preacher in Florida. He's also a writer. And he said this, After church services one Sunday, a couple greeted me on their way out the door. By their cologne, big jewelry, and cliched Christian lingo, I knew they weren't our typical non-religious visitors. Preacher, what an anointed word from God you delivered today, the husband said. I cringed. The only people that talk that way are on Christian television. I swallowed and said, hope to see you next week. His wife looked at me with a grin. Nope, we won't be back. Years ago, the Lord told us to attend a different church every week. So we'll be somewhere else next Sunday. I said, now let me get this straight. You go to a different church every week? And he said, yep, been doing it for five years now. I said, how sad. She angrily shot back, why do you say that? Because, I said, you never get to experience real Christian community. You are like connoisseurs of fine churches. My hunch is it wasn't the Lord who called you to do this. You need to find a church and put down roots. Sure to their word, they did not come back. We want to find a church and put down roots. I know some of you here this morning may be looking for a church. Church shopping is sometimes called. That's fine. You should be. Anybody who's not in a church, a Christian, should be looking for a church. But don't spend five years doing that. We all need to find a church and put down roots. What's the best trip you ever took? Now, I don't answer out loud. Just think about it in your mind. The best trip you ever took in your life. I mentioned two or three weeks ago that we had gone to Yellowstone. I took a trip to Yellowstone, saw Old Faithful and other things. That may have been the best trip for me. It's a great trip. Maybe yours was to Alaska or Hawaii or I don't know. But I I can almost promise you this. I'll bet you this about your best trip. I bet I know this. Whatever it was, wherever it was, if it was your best trip. You didn't go there alone. You sure didn't go there alone. That's what made Yellowstone my best trip. It it wasn't, Old Faithful was great in the sights that we saw, but it was the people that I was traveling with. There are decades of study now on happiness and human fulfillment. They all are saying the same thing over and over again. Happiness, fulfillment does not come from status it's not prestige it's not power it's not money it's not fame it's relationships it's having a circle of soul caring friends that we're taking the journey with if you're if you're in this church soldier on continue on sink those roots down deeper and build relationships Somebody offends us, somebody does the wrong thing in the wrong way. We have grace with each other, we bear with each other, and we keep on keeping on. If you're looking for a church, come on and join us. We need you. We'd love to have you. But I know this church is not for, it's not for everyone. Different churches are different fits. But find a church, put down roots, and build relationships. I believe this to be true for every single one of us. No matter where, what stage of life we are in right now, I believe this to be true. Our, best day, our very best days, they're not behind us. Our very best days are in front of us, in church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you, and we think now about what you've done for us. You have called us out of the world, out of sin, out of darkness, into righteousness, into the light, and into your church. This is your church. It's your kingdom. It's our family. We thank you for that call. We answer that call. We commit ourselves. We're a member of a body. For most of us, this body. We commit and recommit ourselves to work, to serve, to love, to build, to grow the church.